When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, how to make artificial intelligence gain a sense of curiosity. They needed a new way to make agents still curious, but curious with boredom. It turns out boredom is really useful because if you don't get bored, you just stare at the same dumb thing forever and ever. And how a shampoo bottle is saving lives in Bangladesh. It replicates a ventilator, but in a very low-cost, low-tech way. But first, to Silicon Valley. America's technology capital has an outsized effect on the world economy, its stock markets and its culture, and there is no credible rival to its position as the world's preeminent innovation hub. But there are signs that the Valley's influence has peaked. To discuss this, I'm joined on the phone from San Francisco by Alexandra Sweech-Bass, the Economist's U.S. technology editor. Hello, Alexandra. Hi, Ken. Alexandra, Silicon Valley has always had booms and busts. So why do you think that this time could be different? Silicon Valley is still by far the preeminent place to start a tech company, but it is starting to change in some really important ways that we haven't seen before in its history. And one of the key points that I point out in this week's briefing is the dominance of the local giants, namely Facebook, Google, and Apple. And what makes them so unique from their predecessors is that they are incredibly nimble incredibly big, and incredibly rich. And one of the key themes of the piece is the way that they're distorting the startup ecosystem by being able to hoard some of the brightest, most talented engineers and entrepreneurs who might otherwise have gone to work at startups or start their own firm. It just doesn't make economic sense to contemplate that when working at one of these large companies is so lucrative. Okay, now a lot of listeners are going to be asking themselves, well, ho, 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 hold on. We had Oracle, we had Intel in the day, we had Microsoft, granted not in Silicon Valley, but in Redmond. So isn't large technology companies sort of a feature of Silicon Valley? Why should these gargantuan ones sort of distort the valley on the competition side, what's really different today is how nimbly the giants are able to go into new areas because they're software-based. They're able to kind of pivot and position themselves in new areas where they see opportunity. The giants of the past did not have the kind of awareness and availability of data to give them a sense of what would come next. And Facebook, Alphabet, Apple, Amazon have amazingly good data sets that give them a sense of what users are doing, listening to, what apps and services might be popular. So what does that say about how the next generation of internet stalwart like a Facebook or a Google or even just a multi-billion dollar internet company will grow differently than earlier generations? 
Facebooks and Googles of the future may well not scale in the valley. It just doesn't make economic sense for young startups today to compete with the giants. And so they're going to have to build up their employee bases elsewhere. They may well still retain a base in the valley, but they're going to scale their companies in other cities. But I think the point is that we're going to see more distributed companies. The way that people built companies for the last several decades is being upended. You used to all be on one floor the mantra of Silicon Valley was scale locally. And that's just not possible today. And so we're going to see people work remotely and have employee bases all over the world, both as a reaction to Silicon Valley and then thanks to Silicon Valley, because these companies are using the tools that Silicon Valley has produced. But now surely getting rid of the monoculture of white nerds in just a few area codes or zip codes is a good thing. That's the key question. Is this trend of companies potentially leaving Silicon Valley and scaling elsewhere, will that be good or bad for innovation? And there's two ways to look at it. One is the bright side, which is that new ideas, people from different backgrounds with different perspectives are more likely to get funded because these other cities play host to a wider variety of people. So that's a good thing. Maybe the Valley, which has been so monocultural, as you point out, and so undiverse will ultimately be disrupted by startup hubs that incorporate more viewpoints and backgrounds. The other potential angle, though, is that some of the forces that are working against startups in the Bay Area, namely the dominance of the large companies, the American immigration policy, which is making it harder to hire foreigners to work at startups. And of course, foreigners have been hugely important forces in developing some of Silicon Valley's most successful companies. These forces will work against startups everywhere in America and much of the West. And so the key concern is that what is happening in Silicon Valley has important suggestion for that some of the forces may well not be in favor of startups in the coming decade. Alexandra, that's fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. You're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio. Next up, software that can learn without human supervision. One of the major problems with machine learning and artificial intelligence is that human supervision is always needed to give it a nudge towards the right direction. It lacks one of the fundamental features of the human mind, curiosity. To look at how we can build curiosity into our algorithms, however, I'm being joined in the studio by Hal Hodson, the Economist technology correspondent. Hello, Hal. Hello, Ken. Hal, my first question for you is, what is the current limitations of self-learning, machine learning, and AI? Whenever you train an algorithm, and and this is the current paradigm in AI and machine learning, which is that you get what's known as a neural network, and you dump a whole load of data on it, and it sort of adjusts itself so that it learns the features of that data set. Take a data set of pictures from cats and dogs, labeled as such, show it to a a certain algorithm, and it will learn to distinguish between cats and dogs. The problem with this is that whenever you do it, you need to label the data. You need to tell the machine what it's looking at. It's not really very good at exploring the data set for itself. And this is true whether you're doing the learning process I just described, which is quite popular, which is often called convolutional neural networks, or whether you're doing something that's a little bit more a la mode called reinforcement learning, which is where you let an agent loose inside a video game or another simulated environment. And they kind of bounce around trying to figure out what's going on, gathering data to train their model that way. But even when you do that, 
often people think of that as unsupervised learning. It's the agent learns for itself. But that's not true because it only is able to learn because it has a score to, that's being kept inside the game. And the problem with real life and the problem with real world data sets is that there's no scores and there's often no labels. What does it mean for an algorithm to be curious? The first kind of iteration of machine curiosity was that you would tell the machine to always be looking for what's known as prediction error. So this means that if imagine I'm a robot and I walk out the door of the studio here, it would mean that I would predict that the door was going to open in a certain way, but then it actually opens in a different way. And that would be the, my prediction error, the difference between what I predict and what actually happens. And if I'm a curious AI agent sort of from you know the 10 years ago, I would find that very interesting and I would play with that door until the prediction error went away until I was able to predict it. And so my curiosity would be following bits of the world, bits of the data set, bits of the environment that don't match with what I expect. And so I learn that way. The problem with that is that, again, if I'm this dumb robot and I look out the window and I'm looking for prediction error, then I might see a stream of cars all different color going past the window and I'll be fascinated because my prediction error will never go down because there's no real pattern behind the cars, but they are impossible to predict. So it means that the agent becomes really interested in basically chaotic garbage. Um, and so you, they needed a new way to make agents still curious, but sort of curious with boredom. It turns out boredom is really useful because if you don't get bored, you just stare at the same dumb thing forever and ever. I love it. So how did they do that and where are they applying this technique? They did it by essentially looking at the rate of change of prediction error instead of prediction error itself. So this means that if, to use the door example, if I'm opening the door and it doesn't do what I think it's going to do, if it keeps not doing that over and over again, if I'm not learning in the process, if I'm not understanding the door better, eventually it's going to say, okay, look, nothing's changed. This is just boring noise. You should ignore this. This worked quite well. It means that eventually a robot or an, an agent is going to tune out of something that is not worth its time. But interestingly, you get to set the parameters of boredom. And maybe we might want our agents to have a much higher tolerance to boredom than we do because maybe there is an interesting pattern in the color of those cars going past the window or in the door that I can never figure out. Maybe there's some intimate secret of the universe hidden in there that humans are just too scatty to ever spend the time to figure out. So to whom do we thank for bringing curiosity to the algos? There are two main guys. One is Pierre-Yves Houdet, and he works at INRIA in France, and he's been working on curiosity for 15 or 20 years Another one of the main guys is Jürgen Schmidhuber from Switzerland, and he's also been working on this for pretty much as long as Pierre. Another really interesting guy is Ken Stanley, who uh, used to work at the University of South Florida. Now he works at Uber's AI Labs, and he works in a slightly different approach. You wouldn't exactly call it curiosity, but it results in the same kind of explorative behavior. It's called neuroevolutionary AI. So where do you see this technology going first? Dr. Udier in France has used it to try and build a sort of learning recommendation system for primary school kids studying math. And he's actually kind of modeled each kid as their own curious agent and tried to present them with material that sort of will maximize their curiosity and engage them. That's been going on. He, he did the most recent one of those in June. But I think what we're seeing is that these kinds of algorithms, they can work with less data and they don't necessarily end up with such high accuracy results. 
but I think they're going to form the earlier parts of learning systems. So at the beginning, you're going to use these curiosity-driven algorithms. And this makes sense, right, because this is how humans work. At the beginning of learning about physics, I'm just like, wow, isn't it cool that stars explode? And at the end of learning physics, I'm learning to solve equations about something that if you didn't know that it was about stars exploding, you would just think this was really boring. And so I think it makes sense that that's probably the way that these machines are going to work as well. And it's weird that we've kind of put the cart before the horse. We've discovered the kind of heavyweight, heavy-duty learning stuff that requires a lot of direction first. And now we're finding ways to deal with sparser, more real-world environments. Because don't get me wrong, there are places in the real world with patches of highly labeled data where there's a lot of guidance available. For humans, you could think of school. School is kind of like a reinforcement learning system. You get a lot of feedback, you get graded, you're able to sort of project your progress. But before you go to school and you know after you go to school, you don't have that. And so you need other mechanisms to kind of get you into these channels that can give you feedback and rewards and allow you to learn. And I think that's what's happening with machines now. That's fantastic. Hal, thank you very much. Sure thing, Ken. So what are your thoughts on the curiosity of AI or on the relative decline of Silicon Valley? Tell us in an email and send them to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Finally, each year, some 920,000 children around the world die of pneumonia, making it the leading cause of death among those under five. In more serious cases, the use of a ventilator is required, a machine that costs on average $15,000, meaning that in poor countries, it's not always an option. However, there is now a simpler solution, the humble shampoo bottle. I'm joined down the line by Suzanne Savage, who has been reporting on the issue. Hello, Susanna. Hi, Ken. So, Susanna, how much worse is the problem of pneumonia in poor countries? It's a lot worse, actually. For example, the number of children under five who die of pneumonia in Bangladesh is 28% versus 16% globally. And this is for a number of reasons. You're more likely to get pneumonia in a poor country because of problems of sanitation and lack of vaccine. But also you're more likely to die from it because of malnourishment and other, and other types of immune problems that children have in poorer countries. So how does a shampoo bottle help? Traditionally, if antibiotics don't work when you have pneumonia, you need a ventilator to help you breathe. This is because when you have pneumonia, your breathing is inhibited. You get a buildup of carbon dioxide, which means that you don't get enough oxygen going into your lungs and flowing around your body through your blood, which makes you very, very unwell. So a ventilator takes on the role of breathing for you, and normally it's quite an expensive technical device. And then this is just not possible in low-income settings like Bangladesh. So the shampoo bottle helps because it replicates a ventilator, but in a very low-cost, low-tech way. The way that works is you have air coming in from an oxygen source into the, the patient, normally a child, and then another tube which connects to a, a water bottle. And when the air goes, exhaled air goes into that bottle, it creates bubbles, which creates pressure. And that is called continuous positive airway pressure, which fills the lungs and it sort of fills the volume of the lungs and expands them and helps the child to breathe. Okay, so how was this discovery or invention made? It's via a, a doctor called Dr. Mohammed Chisti, who works for the International Centre for Diarrheal Disease, Bangladesh. But he, he was a, a young doctor 
working in Salat in eastern Bangladesh, and he was horrified by the number of children dying from pneumonia, potentially unnecessarily, just because of the lack of resources and like the lack of ventilators. And he saw a continuous positive airway pressure machine, a high-tech version of what's actually known as bubble CPAP, in Australia being used on premature babies whose lungs aren't fully formed yet, so they're not expanding and contracting properly. And he went back to Bangladesh and thought, how can I replicate this? And then he saw a shampoo bottle discarded on the floor of the ICDDRB hospital in Dhaka, and it had some bubbles in it. That's where it sort of all came from. He then experimented, and he managed to put together this device. And the trial started in 2011, and it, it just proved remarkably successful. So do you think it's going to stay in Bangladesh, or will it go elsewhere? Will this be a, a useful mechanism in other poor countries? Yes, definitely. So, so they found it reduced mortality among under fives by 75% in Bangladesh. And they're, they're now just starting to trial it in Ethiopia, working with the Ethiopian government. So that I think they're hoping to scale this up and make it something that can be used across the global south in other countries with sort of similar issues to Bangladesh. That's really interesting. Susanna, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, consider taking out a subscription. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Kukie. This is London. And you're listening to the E-C-O-N-O-M-I-S-T. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.